Good morning. Our passage this morning is uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'm going to open this morning by saying something that might be offensive to some people, depending on who you watch on television for sermons. There's a really famous television evangelist who has written a book entitled, Your Best Life Now. And if you listen to this televangelist, which actually I do, I have to admit I listen to televangelists because I want to see what not to do. So I, if you listen to this televangelist, he pronounces his favorite phrase over and over again. And it's really simple. It goes like this. God wants to bless you. That's the phrase that I hear more than any other when I listen to it. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that phrase. It's actually true. The problem with the phrase and the problem with the theology in the book and behind the person is what is almost always a problem with this kind of theology. It's an overemphasis on one thing. So you know what the overemphasis is. It's often called the health and prosperity or health and wealth gospel. And if you listen carefully, 99.9% of the phrases are about God blessing you and giving you wealth and giving you prosperity and giving you physical healing and making your life otherwise 
perfect. Now, I'm not making that up, my friends. If you don't believe it, just go home after this sermon and encourage yourself by listening to one of those sermons. Because it is an epidemic in Christian broadcasts. Here's the problem with it. It misrepresents the teachings of Jesus, the New Testament, and the entire Bible. Apart from that, it's okay. You know, there's a, there's a, a remarkable contrast in the history of classic Christian literature to that approach to theology. It's just, all I have to do is say one book, Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you know what I'm talking about. Christian leaves a world that is awful, full of sin, and he's journeying towards the celestial city And you know how easy it is? It's not. It's a journey. And he's a sojourner. And he struggles and he gets off track and he almost loses his soul. And then right down near the end because you would think by this time that Christian has got it all together, right? Right down near the end when he's about to walk across that great river of death to the other side, he's terrified. He knows about it. He hears the promise, but still he shakes inside. Sometimes when I hear those kind of preachers, I wonder what the writer of the book of Hebrews would think. Let me remind you of one thing that the writer of the book of Hebrews said. He said there was all kinds of miracles, not just a hall of faith, but a hall of miracles. But then he says there were others. They were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You know what the Bible really teaches about life? Not that you can experience your best life now, but the best life is eternal life. And we're on a journey. 
to inherit it. Let's be more specific concerning some of the themes of the Bible. It teaches this. It teaches us that those who wait are blessed. Does that sound familiar? It's called the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn now, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are starving for righteousness. Because they're going to be filled. Blessed are the meek now. The ones that get beat up. Those who are persecuted. The outcasts. The ones who have no power. Blessed are those people, the meek now. Because they will inherit the earth. Blessed are you when men persecute you. And come against you in every way. You know what, my friend, says Jesus? Blessed are you, and I think you need to remember that you ought to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Because they persecuted the prophets before you. You're in good company. So the first thing that the Scripture teaches in the New Testament concerning real life is this. Blessed are you when you wait. When delayed gratification is a part of your very DNA. When you realize that you don't get it all right now. Blessed are you. Another thing the Bible teaches us is that difficult circumstances have a divine purpose. Remember the book of Philippians? Where Paul is in jail, as he is in a couple of other prisons, I mean, a couple of other epistles, he's in jail. In Philippians, he's in jail. And he says, you know what? I know you're concerned about me, but don't be. As a matter of fact, I know you're bothered by the fact that people are taking advantage of my imprisonment. They're running around trying to do things to eclipse me. Actually, they're criticizing me. They're starting new churches. They're trying to undermine my authority. And he says, but I really don't care. You know why? Because the gospel's being proclaimed. That's why. He goes on to say that these circumstances, which are my chains, these circumstances are also for the advancement of the gospel. You know why? Because the Praetorium Guard, the people who live and work in Caesar's palace, are now right here with me day after day, and they're my captives. They're hearing about the gospel, and it's changing their lives. So the Bible tells us that difficult circumstances have a divine purpose. We see this throughout church history as well. Martin Luther was in prison for a year because things were really bad out there and his friends were afraid he was going to be killed and he probably would have been. He was imprisoned for a year in a castle. So you know what he did? He just took his time to translate the New Testament into German. Thank God for his imprisonment. Or how about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who ended up being executed by the Nazis? The greatest things he ever wrote were the things he wrote in prison. Or how about John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress? Another prison letter. Or how about Martin Luther King? I don't know if you've read much of King. His greatest work is letters from prison. 
The Bible tells us that difficult circumstances are there and they advance the kingdom of God in ways that all of us shiny people with all our positive language couldn't possibly do if everything was going well. So first, blessed are those who wait. Second, difficult circumstances have a divine purpose. Third, personal trials, all they do is produce character. That's all they do. I quote Paul again, this time from Romans. You know the verse well. We also glory. Now that is a strange word when associated with pain, but that's what he does. We also glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance patience, and patience character, and character hope. That's the end of the sentence, but I've got to stop there. This is not a self-help book about developing character. That's good in and of itself. But that's not Paul's driving point. It's not that difficulty in life just produces character. It's something more. When we have a proper perspective on the divine sovereignty of God, it doesn't just produce character, it produces hope. What it produces in us is a longing for heaven. What it produces in us is when all things will be made new. That's what Paul's saying. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given us. The Holy Spirit that another place is described as multiple places, the comforter. The one who speaks for us when we are groaning with words that can't even be uttered. Paul says, it's producing spiritual character and hope. Third thing the Bible teaches us about life is that we are pilgrims who are made for eternity. After I'd submitted the sermon title, I wish I had made it more simple. Made for eternity. We're sojourners, we're wayfarers, but we're made for eternity. Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham, talks about him as a sojourner, a pilgrim in a land that was not his own. That's only an image. It's not just about Abraham. It's an image about those who follow Christ by faith. So we too are pilgrims, strangers, aliens in a place that's really not home. As a matter of fact, Abraham, it said, lived in tents. And all the time he lived in tents, he was looking ahead to something else. An eternal city whose builder and maker was God. You know, pilgrims get sore feet, right? And blisters and sore muscles. And eventually, they just kind of break down in their body. 
A wonderful author uh, named Annie Dillard was writing about discipleship. And she said, I once knew a priest who was aging in his duties. And every time he knelt at the altar and stood back up, his knees cracked loudly. Get this phrase. Only an author can do this. She says, it was a fine church music, this sound of cracking knees. A fine church music, this sound of cracking knees. It was knees that had bent over and over again in the presence of God. Paul puts it this way, just like Abraham in Hebrews 11 lived in tents, Paul says, for we know that when this earthly tent, yeah, this one right here, is taken down, that is when we die, as the New Living Translation puts it, and leave this earthly body, we have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. My friends, not only is your house only a tent, so is your body. You're made for eternity. Final thing I want to mention about what the Bible tells us about life is this. The Bible tells us that the greatest experiences of earth are only a dim reflection of eternity. That's what it tells us. The most beautiful sunset pales in comparison to glory. The most endless frontier is not even scratching the surface. The most perfect relationship which some of you long for and others of you have lost. That most perfect relationship, it doesn't even come close to the presence of God. The greatest joy you've ever experienced. What is it? It's just a taste on the tip of the tongue concerning eternity. (laughs) Helen Keller uh, made an interesting statement one time. She said, I can see. And that is why I can be happy in what you call the dark, but which to me is golden. I can see a God-made world not a man-made world. The sight of the blind. Finally, I want to ask this question of all of us. If we really believed this, I don't mean believed it, you know, that kind of belief up there in the head. If we really believed it, if it really consumed all of us, what would our life be like? Or maybe another way to put it is, 
If you didn't believe it, would your life be any different than it is now? So if we really believed it, what would it be like? Just a few suggestions. Maybe every day would matter and would have very, very deep meaning. Every day, every moment. Maybe we would embrace the words of Ecclesiastes, do whatever your hands find to do and do it with all your might. Or maybe we would embrace every day and every moment of the day Paul's admonition. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Everything you do. He didn't exclude anything. And you may remember he was speaking against legalism and food sacrifice to idols and things that people thought were wrong. And Paul said, the whole earth is the Lord's. Do it to the glory of God. So if we really believed it, maybe every day would look like that. If we really believed it, we might view trials of life as blessings in disguise. We might quote to ourselves the verse that we know, but in the midst of the trials, forget to quote. And we know that God works for the good of all those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. Or maybe if we really believed this, we would actually believe in the depths of our soul, not just a platitude, we would really believe that death is the doorway to eternal life. It wouldn't make the pain go away. That would be an improper theology. You know, why wouldn't make the pain go away? Because the beauty of the life with the one you love is only a dim reflection of eternity. That's why the pain wouldn't go away, because the loss is that deep. On the other hand, maybe we'd focus on life as eternal. As you know, last week um, I preached and I wasn't scheduled to. And it was because uh, Dan Waugh's father unexpectedly passed away. In an email exchange that he got from a friend that I was copied on because we were trying to do some things together, this individual said, I'm so sorry for your loss. I know it goes deep. But your father obviously has gone to be with the Lord. And he said, it reminded me of an engraving that I saw on a tombstone in Oregon. And here were the words. Death is but putting out the light because the dawn has come. That, that's what it means for the Christian. It's the putting out of the light because the dawn has come. You're in the presence of the Lord. So maybe if we really believed it, we would see death as a doorway to eternity. Not that it wouldn't hurt, but we'd believe it. And maybe if we believed it, beauty, any kind of beauty, would only make us long for heaven. The book of Hebrews talks about a lot of things as shadows, right? 
They're not clear images of the eternal reality. They're only shadows of the eternal reality. And the book of Revelation, I think it's fascinating. The book of Revelation, it takes images that we all know and love and appreciate and gravitate towards. And he uses those images and then expands them. You know what one image that an ancient person would have saw as absolutely beautiful? A beautiful city with beautifully paved streets. I know sometimes we don't think of cities as beautiful anymore. But it was safety. It was the dwelling place of people. It was paved streets. It was delightful. Everything was there. So John, in the Revelation, gets an understanding of heaven. And he said, this city called the New Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. What comes down out of heaven? Perfection. One of the images he created for those who knew beautiful cities, he said the streets in this city are made of pure gold. Who would ever conceive of streets of pure gold? And why would he even pin it that way? He pinned it that way, I think, because gold, which is the most costly sought-after metal on earth, that gold that's so beautiful and so wonderful is only a dim reflection of the eternal reality of the presence of Christ so you can use it to pave the streets. So you can walk on your gold. Because Christ is so beautiful. If we really believed all this, we'd probably live with a longing, with an anticipation of complete freedom. Freedom from fear, which if you do a little self-analysis, is most of the time your primary motivator in life. And freedom from sin. (laughs) As the book of Hebrews says, it so easily entangles us. I can't wait for that. I can't think of anything more beautiful than not having to struggle with my own sin. Can you? And of course, freedom from death. Our last great enemy. Surely if we really believed this, we'd be more grateful people for the undeserved gift of eternal life. And if we really believed this, I don't think we'd repeat silly phrases like your best life now. Instead, we'd embrace the promise that our best life is yet to come in eternity. And that, my friends, is good news on any day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, the wisdom that's imparted to us uh, through your word. We pray that you will keep us balanced with the wisdom that you impart from your word because we, we're twisted and our thinking goes astray and 
It's not just the others who have the problem, it's us. So we pray you will refocus our hearts and give us a deeper understanding of what life really means. And give us perseverance and and even joy on the journey, even when life was hard. That will only come when our perspective changes and when your presence is real by faith. And we'll thank you for the promise of eternity. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.